0: Well, this evening we have our last installment in looking at examples of what we mean by the authority of secular government. What can a king demand? What can a government demand of its people Uh, and still be within the realm of God's uh, permission? of God's uh, lent authority to them. And we've looked at a lot of Old Testament examples uh, that are ones we're familiar with, I hope, but really had not looked at from that perspective very often. We seldom see that really developed in terms of their uh, encounter with those government entities. Uh, There are many others that I did not address as well, uh, we referenced some of those along the way, um, but we didn't look at them in Scripture particularly. Um, but they are still just as valid, and they, I would believe, complement all that we've taught. And tonight we want to get into the New Testament, lest someone say, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. And when you get the New Testament, we have a different uh, perspective. We have a different idea of the relationship between God's people and and human government, and national government, really. And we're going to hopefully see a little bit differently than that tonight. Um, There's uh, been a lot made in the past when we come to the idea of government, and there are certain passages that are always used. Uh, We want to address some of those, but we also want to look at uh, others that I think, are uh, neglected. I think it's interesting whenever we have the discussion of uh, violence and war and things along that line and the Christians' participation in that, we often come to the description of Christ saying uh, you know, to the disciples, don't take change of garments, don't take a purse, and don't take a sword to defend yourself. Just go out there and minister. And uh, when the disciples come back, they are energized and excited. And we have that uh, statement that God protected me, God provided for me, um, and God ministered through me. And uh, we were able to see God glorified. And many make much of when Christ comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and gives a little bit different instruction in the midst of the Last Supper and all that is transpiring there, whether it was on the way to Gethsemane, at Gethsemane. Um, the statement is made that now, you know, that's the way it was then. Uh, and he asked the question, what did you lack? And they said, nothing. We didn't lack anything. Everything was cared for. And he says, well, now uh, for... And the question is, how long is the now last? That is, is Christ saying, here is a new paradigm that goes all the way from this point forward, or is it just for that uh, occasion? And I would contend that uh, that former is more in line than the latter. But the statement then he makes is that you need to uh, take changes of clothing, you need to have your purse with you, and you need to get a sword, and of course, uh, The disciples had already acquired two swords. They say that. And then I think very uh, instructively, Christ says, well, that's enough. Which tells us that it wasn't an extensive, every single person needs a sword. It was not instruction that we are going to now enter into a violent encounter. I'm sure that's somewhat of what the disciples had on their mind. Remember, they wanted God's kingdom on earth. They had been trying to push for that. And I'm sure there's a few of them probably Judas for sure, and a couple others that were saying, oh, finally we're getting somewhere. Let's go get a sword. God, Christ is going to come into his kingdom. And then Christ comes off with this statement saying that, because uh, it must be fulfilled that he was numbered with the transgressors. What? That's right, he's going to be numbered with criminals. And so I'm going to make you look like criminals. <laughs> so you have your swords. Of course, Peter uses one of the swords, cuts off, Uh, the the high priest's servant's ear, and Christ uh, says, put that away, heals the ear. And essentially we have that component that if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by it. And that's not his kingdom. And so we have that encounter, but many people make much of the fact that Christ commanded his disciples to get a sword and thinking that that carries over into our day and I can't find that uh, supported in the text at all. But we do have, in John, a direct reference between Christ and government. Um, he has certainly dealt with the tax issue. Uh, granted, that wasn't the Caesarian tax. That was the, the tax for the temple that was being asked for. Um, Jesus says, go ahead and get the tax go fishing. You'll find the, the money in the fish's mouth. Uh, you can pay, enough, it'll be enough for you and me, and let's go pay our tax. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Even after he said, you know, I really don't owe that tax because the son doesn't pay taxes. Um, the The prince, the son of the king, doesn't pay tax. Because he's the recipient of taxes, not the payer of taxes. And so... Um, it really wasn't appropriate Christ didn't have to pay it but he did pay it and I think that's a great message that we need to could spend a lot of time on as well um, Christ also gave us some engagement with the authorities that were there um, in references throughout um, that there would be a responsible answering for what was done by Herod uh, and uh, that God took care of that that when a man uh, in authority uh, begins to take glory in that, that there is a judgment. And God destroyed that Herod, correct? The tetrarch, and just, uh, not the tetrarch, Herod the great, and just destroyed by worms. Fell down right in front of everybody when everybody was ready to worship him. God says, not on my watch and not in my land. And so uh, we have principles, we have engagements all through the Gospels, Um, between Christ, there even going back to his birth with the decree putting out by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And we find that in the midst of conforming to that decree, uh, the result was that prophetic utterances of hundreds of years earlier were fulfilled. That the agent of evil, because we all know taxes are evil, right? The agent of evil... uh, Ended up being the means that God uses to develop a scenario that fulfills Scripture, and this is where we want to address tonight, uh, and that is uh, how far that authority extends. We saw the example there in Second Samuel, or in First Samuel, two or seven, eight. I'll get there um, about the uh, extent of what kings could ask for, we're going to look at that really in the narrative of Christ's trial is where I want to focus, and we're going to go into the the book of Acts and Romans. Before we do that, let's go over in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the truth of your word and for its consistency, and we pray that we might, by your spirit, delve into it in a manner that glorifies your name, Uh, and we pray that uh, we might not only have that consistent knowledge, but the application of it as well, into our life today. That this is not a distant thing, but something near hand. It doesn't revolve around just ancient governments, but our relationship with our government or any Christian's government in this age. And we pray that you might give us that wisdom to encounter your word and bring it to life in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have in John chapter 18, is where I'm going to spend, 18 and 19, is where I'm going to spend a little bit of time. This is Christ's interaction with Pilate. I want to focus in on it. Um, Herod had his interests, um, and he wanted to see Jesus, but um, he wasn't going to get what he wanted out of Jesus. He wanted a miracle to perform. He was just kind of intrigued by He's heard about this guy, um, but he wasn't getting anywhere. Jesus wasn't responding. Uh, he ships him off to Pilate and Pilate receives him in the role that he had there uh, in the praetorium in the courtroom. The accusation is delivered. Uh, The motive is there is that they want to put him to death, and they don't have the authority to do that. Interesting, they bypass that whole thing when they get to Stephen just a few months later, isn't it? But uh, they do put Stephen to death without... uh, going through this process. And so, um, Pilate comes in, verse 33, as we're going to pick up in chapter 18 of John, and asks the pointed question, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You have say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And of course then is Pilate's famous question, What is truth? And his declaration, he found no fault in Jesus Christ, in him. Um, We have here something that's in strange opposition to the the statement of Christ about going and getting a sword. And now he's saying, you know, my kingdom isn't really here. I'm not trying to make a place for my kingdom among the nations. Uh, Mine is a kingdom that is going to uh, transcend nations. Uh, But... uh, my servants aren't going to fight. They're not going to keep me out of the hands of the Jews. That's not the purpose. Uh, rather, the purpose of the swords was to make sure that Jesus was identified with transgressors, not just in his death at Calvary, but even in his arrest that he was numbered among transgressors, those that, that were supposedly men of violence. And so not only the two on the cross, but Christ attaches that even to the fellowship he had with the apostles who were sword bearers and even used the sword against the servant of the high priest. Uh, And so certainly uh, qualifying them in that manner, at least in men's eyes. And so Christ here makes it very clear that when you are a participant in the kingdom, the kingdom of truth, that that precludes you from this kind of fight. He says, my my servants are not fighting for me in the human sense, for this kingdom here to try to establish me or protect me from this. Um, If my kingdom were of this world, um, then they would fight. But because that conditional statement was not met, his kingdom is not of this world, then there was no reason for them to fight nations. There was no reason for that kind of insurrection against them. This is going to be developed a little bit later on when Pilate comes back to Jesus Christ, having gone out and offered uh, to release Jesus. And they said, no, we want Barabbas instead. Um, and he says, well, maybe if I just beat Jesus up a little bit you know, and uh, bloody him up, that will satisfy the bloodlust of the people. But he's underestimated that entirely. Um, And again declares that he finds no fault in him. They say, crucify him, crucify him. And then finally, um, he comes back to Jesus in verse 8 of chapter 19. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. What he heard was, this man says he's the son of God. He had just heard Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world. Now he's hearing the people say, this man claims to be the son of God. This is a different thing than being king of the Jews, right? Now he's suddenly saying, oh, this is a different plane, and this is some frightening stuff. Um, and here comes Jesus Christ's statement. I'm sorry, Pilate's question, first of all. Um, because of this idea that he's the Son of God, because Jesus just said his kingdom is not of this world, and Pilate could have easily said not of the Israeli world or the Roman world and somewhere outside. Pilate asks the questions, where are you from? Who exactly are you? Where are you he from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. In verse 10, Pilate asks him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And Jesus doesn't Question that he has that authority. He indeed does have the authority, but he answers this way. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you're going to have to do what you're going to have to do. But one of the primary principles we're learning here is that God... Recognizes, Jesus Christ here is recognizing the authority of Pilate as a representative of the Roman government. That here he is, he has this authority, and that authority is not derived from Caesar, it's not derived from an electorate, it's not derived from a senate, it's not derived from a, a, a military unit, it's derived from above. The authority that a government carries. No matter how evil that authority is, is one that is, that is granted it from God. That God has lent them that authority. And so he says, the authority you have, he, he recognizes it, but he says, but it's derived from my Father. It's derived from above, from heaven. And so you're going to do what you have to do because you're the authority that God has placed here to do what needs to be done. And in that process, you are going to uh, be on the wrong side of this equation. You're going to be on the side of the equation that is going to do physical injury to the Son of God. Your wife's been warmed in a dream. Uh, You know that it's not just. You know that's a miscarriage of, of everything you hold dear as, as some of the values of Rome. And uh, you personally know that it's wrong, but you're going to be backed into a corner by public pressure. This was, a, this was a, the result of polling. After Pilate did some polling, he decided he better go ahead and do what he didn't want to do, what his conscience told him not to do. But to please the Jews, he was going to do an unjust thing. But Jesus then makes a statement. He says, "You, while you have the authority to kill or not kill me, to crucify me or not crucify me, and you do have the authority, and that authority is from above, um, there are other pressures that God recognizes and... God holds them in account in His distribution of responsibility, specifically, which is the greater sin. And here we get into something that makes us scratch our heads a little bit, because are there greater sins and lesser sins? In this sin of the crucifixion of our Lord, um, there's going to be blame affixed. And the Jews have already made the declaration, they're going to make it uh, uh, again and again, His blood be upon us and our children. Let his blood be upon us. Crucify Christ. We'll take the blame. And Christ here seems to agree with that statement. That Pilate, you're going to make the wrong choice. But in making the wrong choice, you're completing God's purposes. And the weight of that wrong choice, you're going to bear a little bit. But the greater sin, the greater weight, the greater responsibility for it is going to lie upon those that brought me to you. Because they have more truth. They have had all the miracles happen before them. They have had all that has gone on in the last three years. They know what they're doing. you really just been introduced here at the very end, and, and you're going to be an agent. And you're going to be backed into a corner. And so he says, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And whether he's referring to Herod himself, to the chief priests, um, to the entity called Israel, or to the religious uh, following the Pharisees and that, the Sanhedrin, um, Christ is recognizing that there is a uh, careful distribution of, in God's economy of who is most responsible for this act of violence. And so, yes, ultimately we can blame Pilate. But we all see in the record here and other places that Pilate um, was ultimately, in the end, a politician that had to have these other things cared for. He didn't want to be responsible for a big uprising among the people on his watch. Uh, that was going to happen in, a, in about um, another 30, 40 years down the line, thirty-five years or so, with the big rebellion at sixty-seven AD. And and so he's trying to keep these these Jews under control and the tensions that are there, and he's gonna capitulate when he shouldn't. And we can put a lot of blame there, but Jesus says, you know, the authority you have, God gave you. You're the means to an end. You're gonna have some responsibility, but the greater sin is committed by the people who brought me to you, the one who brought me here. He's committed. They've committed that greater sin. And so Christ here recognizes that authority. And again, you know, Pilate sought to release him. That was an answer that from Pilate's view uh, just made it more urgent that he let this man go. But again, he is backed into a corner. and pronounce the judgment on Jesus Christ. He had that authority. It was exercised unjustly, and yet the disciples were not to fight against it. Do not oppose this. The authority that Pilate has to crucify me is from God, the greatest sin lies with those who have rejected me. Pilate ultimately right here hasn't fully rejected Christ. I don't know how much he really knows of Christ or how much he would know later. Um, his was a unjust act but it was not a rejection of who Christ was as much as it was just a political uh, point that he had to make. And so Christ puts that sin so the combination of his statement, my servants will not fight because my kingdom is not of this world, even when you apply your divine authority to have me crucified unjustly, and you know it, and everyone else knows it, certainly my servants know that, they are still not going to fight. I don't know how much farther we have to really go to really grasp this idea that this is the circumstances that we find ourselves in, that we are citizens of another kingdom. We will uh, not engage to try to conform this kingdom to that kingdom because it will never happen. It is an exercise in futility because Christ himself must bring that kingdom to conquer this kingdom, we cannot, uh, unless we have hold some kind of weird uh, post-millennialist or amillennialist position, uh, have this truth vanquish all the nations. Because we're not talking about just America, we're talking about all the nations. And Christ here makes it very clear that our fight is about a kingdom to come and it is not over such temporal issues as this life, let alone taxes or other issues that our forefathers of this nation thought they were right in fighting over. We come then farther on and we find another encounter in a kind of trial setting. Um, I could look at other times when the disciples were were uh, beaten, when they were uh, commanded to disobey. There were times where they were in prison. Sometimes they were released miraculously. Sometimes they weren't. Uh, Sometimes they were uh, murdered. Um, Other times they were uh, given a divine escape. For Paul, he comes in and he has this encounter at the end of the book of Acts. We have him having to defend himself. He's been falsely accused of something he didn't do, that he had brought Gentiles into the temple area. He hadn't done that, but he was accused of that. Uh, There was some turmoil. Uh, The captain of the guard thinks he's... this This is kind of humorous to our study. The captain of the guard thinks that he is a rebel rouser. This guy, Paul, is trying to stir up a rebellion against Rome... And he drags him out there, and that's who he thinks he's arrested, is that he is arrested a rebel rouser, and so he's getting ready to beat on him. And Paul says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! What are you doing here?" Yeah, he says, "Aren't you this person?" Paul says, "That's not me. That's not who I am." And uh, so the captain sends him back down there. He sees that it, and, and Paul engages the Sanhedrin, and finally just says, this is all about the resurrection. Let's just boil this down to the core issue. I believe in the resurrection. Suddenly, the Sanhedrin is split. The the Pharisees say, we can't find fault with this man. The the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, are opposed to that. And there's turmoil. They're about ready to rip Paul apart. And um, the captain has to go down and rescue him. For his own benefit. For his own... uh, Deliverance he is is brought out this then puts him into the setting of the Roman court system where the witnesses have come up Paul uh, declares his citizenship uh, and that immediately requires the commander there of the of the guard to treat him differently and This we want to address a little bit. Paul is going to, he has learned over the course of his missionary journeys, to declare citizenship when he has been brought into trials and accused of things by Jews who aren't citizens. And so he is employing something that he has, and rightly so, in a a court setting, The Roman government has granted me these privileges, these rights, if you will, and we wonder sometimes why Paul is so slow to exercise them. He waits till he's already been imprisoned overnight before he bothers to tell anyone, "Um, Roman citizens, you can't imprison them overnight without a trial. Can't do that. I'm a citizen. He's going to use that here, Uh, in in Jerusalem and in Caesarea later on. Yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, You can't just start beating me. Now, he'd allowed the Jews beating him. He'd been beaten many times. Thrown out for dead. But in a court system, his government, his empire, the Roman Empire, had afforded those that had citizenship uh, certain privileges and rights And he exercised those, um, and he's going to keep exercising those all the way to the point that he's finally going to not put his fate into the hands of Felix or Festus or any of these guys. He's going to put his fate into the hands of Caesar, and he does what a Roman can ultimately do, kind of like us saying, I'm taking this to the Supreme Court, um, I'm going to Caesar. To Caesar, I appeal. I want my case tried in front of Caesar himself. And, of course, that's going to take some time. And over this transition, he's in years in house arrest. Years he is there waiting. And then he finally appeals to Caesar. And it's going to be years before he gets uh, out of that or involved in that. And so, during this time, there's plots against him. There's some interesting things happening. But during this time, Paul has an opportunity to minister. And he's been told that that's what's going to happen when he was converted. That you're going to be speaking not only to Jews, but to Gentiles and to kings. So here he is, um, and we have Acts, multiple chapters here of Acts, uh, particularly with Felix in chapter uh, 23. We come into chapter 24, and we have... Um, the we have Festus, we have Felix then um, coming upon the scene. Uh, we have all of these opportunities for his defense of his faith. Never does he bring accusation against these men. It is all about the resurrection of the dead. And he boils it back down to that over and over again. Um, in chapter 24, verse 21. Uh, let's back up and see a little bit of his defense. Um, verse 19. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any doing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, as his Christianity, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll make a decision on your case. And uh, he commands the attorney to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, then Felix had come with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And again, you think, well, you know, Paul's going to start getting some issues. Well, no, King Agrippa shows up. And now we have another uh, individual involved. Uh, so we have Felix, we have Festus on the scene, Where Paul appeals to Caesar with Festus, King Agrippa shows up. And again he has an opportunity to give a witness. And Agrippa gives uh, perhaps one of the most um, telling instances of just what uh, the power of Paul's testimony was. Where Agrippa says, Paul, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. And Paul says, oh, I wish you were just like me, but without these chains. He has developed a rapport and a relationship with these men of authority by never undermining their authority, of recognizing um, that they honor certain aspects, certain principles of Roman government. He is going to certainly employ them, um, but he's also... Knowing that that's really not his mission, is his freedom. His mission that he is given by God is to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, including to kings. And he's already started that process. It's going to be culminated really in the appeal to Caesar. But we have uh, him willingly being sent off. The shipwrecks happen. All of this happens. He's still under house arrest by the end of the book of Acts. And. Uh, has a powerful witness and testimony in that setting. And in the midst of all of this, we want to take what drove Paul's relationship with these people. Well, I think we have to go to Romans 13 to discern that. What drove his relationship with the authorities around him? And of course, Romans 13 is the famous passage about our relationship with government. And you knew I was going to get to this eventually. And so, here it is stated outright. It's going to almost be identical to what Jesus said. And that is, verse 1, "...let every soul be subject to the governing authorities." Multiples. "...for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will will bring judgment on themselves." For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And we have this summary, if you will, that's built upon a fundamental principle. And that fundamental principle goes right back to Jesus' statement. Uh, it goes right back to Paul's attitude that is there in front of the authorities that are trying him, um, that uh, the authority you have, I will recognize, I will submit to, I will surrender to, because I know where it's derived from. But because we have the philosophy that authority for our government is derived from the electorate, we conclude that we can oppose it. Because we've been taught this democratic republic form of government. And we think that somehow that God isn't involved and engaged in it. That really we decide who our governors are. And therefore they are responsible to us. And they need to submit to us. And it puts the whole relationship upside down. And in the process of doing that you end up saying God is not a part of it. When it has been very clear, as we're going to see when we press forward next week into 1 Samuel, and we are going to move forward in 1 Samuel, that God is the one who grants that authority. He is the one that identifies government, grants it authority to exercise the power of the sword, specifically here, the power to tax, um, which is what we've seen there in 1 Samuel. Wow, he can take, look at what he can take. Into his service. Yes, he can take all that. If he wants it. He doesn't have to need it, even if he wants it. And so we, we, we submit taxes to him. Tax, we render it to them. Their demands of us. Um, recognizing that they are, and this is a scary word, they are ministers of God. But they're not believers. How can unbelievers be ministers of God? Because God is at work in this world to accomplish His purposes. And we come to that statement that He works all things together for the good, the ultimate and concluding good for those who love Him are called according to His purposes. And just as Pilate was in that place, carrying that authority to crucify or not crucify, and God gave him that authority, it was invested in him, he was responsible for it, he was going to have to answer for it, certainly, but he was the agent of God that was necessary without God approving of it, and without God forcing it. And this is, again, built upon Paul's idea of foreknowledge and others as well, that they have already introduced to us here in Romans. And so God is an active agent, as as we heard in Sunday school. You know, he's not a, a vacant landlord. He is actively involved. And whenever we come to the governmental process, and whether you say, well, they came to power by an act of violence, And so we can oppose them because they came in such wickedness, which we read out of the uh, common sense paper that Thomas Paine wrote. You know, when a king comes to power the way this king came to power, we have every right. This can't be of God. Really? Well, once we establish that principle that some powers can come into power, and not be divine power by the manner in which they came into authority, that only the ones that came into authority right, or good, or as benevolent authority, that only that can be of God, now, we can justify any act of violence against any government. Right? Can't we just say, oh, we have so many people that that are just voting entitlements, and so their vote shouldn't count, and we shouldn't submit to this president, because look at all the people that voted for him. They're all on the dole. They're all, or maybe they don't have the intelligent quotient that's good, high enough or good enough. Maybe they're not educated enough. We can find any reason, once we accept the philosophy of Thomas Paine's paper, that, ju- that he tried to justify why they could violently rebel against their government, their king, we can make that true of every king. Paul here doesn't reference how they came to the authority, but rather where the authority comes from. The idea of the authority, the principle of the authority, that we don't have to participate in them rising to power, but rather we recognize that because they have risen to power, whether by evil means or by benevolent means, they have that power, and we conclude that God intends for them to possess it. I think if there is any place on earth right now that this message would really needs to be, uh, or really that this message could be exemplified, would be in Cuba, in the in the nation of Cuba. Um, there was. An attitude that was not very un-American. In fact, it was a pretty American attitude that we are being oppressed by our government. And so a couple of Baptist preachers hooked up with a guy named Fidel and started a revolution. For many of the very same principles laid out in the founding of this nation, they felt they had just cause for violent insurrection against their government, and those two brothers, who were both Baptist preachers, were the became the two generals of Fidel's army, and led them in battle against the government, and effectively. But in the course of that, they lost their lives. The two greatest martyrs of Fidel Castro's revolution were Baptist preachers who were brothers. And then once Castro came to power, he turned on those men and declared himself, after the fact, communist. And so that's why in Cuba, Baptist churches are given a lot of liberty. Because they supported the revolution. But the Baptist churches have almost nothing to do with Castro because he betrayed them in their minds. The process of Fidel Castro coming to government was erroneous. The preachers were wrong. Just as much wrong as a current pastor in Cuba would be wrong in rebelling against Castro or joining a coup against him or participating in it or justifying violent rebellion. It is not our role to try to see God's hand and we're going to make it come to be rather is to surrender to the government at in authority until by some hand that authority is replaced supplanted then we recognize that one as being appointed by god and all the while in that transition we are not participating and usurping God's role there. That somehow we're going to be God's agent to change this government. Rather, our role is one that we are going to be subject to it. I mean, if we resist the authority, you're resisting the ordinance of God. To put up resistance against the government, not because you want to preach the gospel, not because you want to live a moral life uh, and they're telling you to do something erroneous, but you're resisting it because you don't like paying taxes for this thing or you don't like you know, them taking your son off to fight wars you don't like and things like that. Um, that kind of resistance, God says, you're really resisting me. Because I'm the one that establishes those authorities. And we are just as those two brothers were sure that they had a legitimate argument for violent rebellion, and it backfired on them. They were martyrs for cause that brought godlessness to a whole nation. And yet now we stand on this side of it and say, well, God appointed him to be there. And what I want us to begin to think in terms of is who committed the greater sin. Taking you back to Jesus and Pilate, right? Who committed the greater sin? is the way of men to rebel. But those who know the truth, who have walked with Jesus, who have seen the miracles, who have heard the prophets, who have read the scriptures, for them to participate in such a thing, I believe, is the greater sin than any oppressive exercise of governmental authority. The greater sin wasn't Pilots for doing what governments do. They take your stuff, they take your kids and send them off to war. They take your property, they they do stuff like that. They make your life a little harder. But they also make it easier and safer, but we don't focus on that very much. They do what they do, and God has granted them the authority to do that. Our responsibility is to be subject to them to not resist them, to help them, to make their job easier, to pay taxes, to give them honor, to give them custom, to give them fear, if that's what they require, I'll do that as long as I, um, and if I have to disobey because God tells me to do something different, then I'm going to do it, but I'm going to expect them to judge me because they have the authority to judge me, I'll accept that, gladly. That's why the disciples could walk out there rejoicing. They are counted worthy of suffering for His namesake. But to participate in the rebellion is the greater sin. It is greater than the oppressive government. It is greater than the pilot crucifying Christ was the ones who rebelled against the truth that Christ had preached. I would contend that the greater sin between Castro's communistic government and the two brothers helping him were the two brothers helping him. Because they didn't obey this command. Be subject to the authority that is. Render to them their due. Do not resist authority because you're resisting God. The ordinance of God is there. Don't commit the greater sin by participating in the process of trying to be God and replace an existing government. Once an existing government has been replaced by the working of men and the overworking of God, then I will submit to this new government. But to participate in that process is a very different thing. Command stands. It's very simple. It's very forthright. It's been exemplified by both Old Testament saints, by Jesus Himself, by Paul and the disciples who consistently recognize that these authorities are divine authorities. Not that everything they do is perfect or right or good or makes you happy, um, but that we recognize they have a purpose. And that purpose is might be a mystery to us until we are in God's presence. And this is where we obey because we trust. We obey God's word to submit because we trust God that He knows what He's doing. And He really does know what He's doing so well that He doesn't need your help to do it. He doesn't need you to fix anything when it comes to the nations. He needs you to obey what He has permitted to be established and has now granted authority, ordained that authority to be. We know that one day Jesus Christ will bring His authority to bear. And He will overthrow that by the word of His mouth. When He will uh, rightly take the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords in the physical plane here on this planet. For 1,000 years. Which is why we're not waiting for the 7,000th year, Bill. We're waiting for the 6,000th year, which we're almost at. He will do that. Until he does that, our kingdom is not of this world. We don't fight. We don't resist. We don't rebel. We are subject. We are rendering to them their due. And their due that because they are where they are. And God has designed it that way. And I accept that because I trust Him. Not that I trust my government, I fundamentally don't. And it doesn't matter whether I'm here in Cuba or in Peru or in India or anywhere, Jordan. Don't trust human government. Because the heart is deceitful above all things. Men are evil. They'll do evil continually, all the day long. I trust the Lord who put them there to accomplish his purposes. And because of that, I will obey God's command to be subject, to not resist, to render them their due, and to not fight. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for allowing us to become citizens of your kingdom, to be servants of your kingdom, and then, Lord, even be promised to reign with you in your kingdom. Lord, we marvel at it. We look forward to it. But we also see your instruction in your word with regard to the kingdoms of men here while we are in the flesh. And Lord, our prayers, you might give us wisdom to walk harmless, As doves, but wise as serpents here, that we might carefully discern what are real battles for faith, and which are just rebellion. And Lord, when we do disobey, we trust in you that even in receiving punishment for that obedience, that we might be joyful i glad to do it as a testimony that no matter the cost, we will trust you and obey. And Lord, guard our hearts from rebelling against any government you put over us. That we might truly make ourselves subject to them as your servants over us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.